0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to our weekly state of the market update on the Home a Loan podcast. I'm your host, Matt Gare, NMLS 1549221, Equal Housing Lender. We are joining you after a week off. There was no pod last week. It was Memorial Day, and I promised my wife that I would actually take the day off. So we didn't release anything last week on Monday, no editing from the following Friday. But we're back this week and we're going to talk about mortgage rates today, but we're going to spend a little bit more time on it than we have in the past few weeks. I think it's time to explain some of the data that we watch monthly, maybe in a little bit more detail to really help you understand. So this episode will be partnered with a longer educational episode on the history of mortgage rates. You'll see that come out a handful of days after this one, because you've got to know the past if you want to predict the future. All right, so getting back to it, what's up? What's been going on the past two weeks? Well, in one word, it's going to be volatility. We covered this, um, or we covered the start of this volatility two weeks ago in our podcast. And at that time, interest rates had begun to increase. They broke out of the previous range that they had been sitting in for a couple of weeks. And we saw interest rates climb up, hit that 7% average for a 30 year conventional. Well, this past week, that's going to be May 30th through June 2nd, has seen a little bit of recovery on interest rates, just not a dramatic amount. So end of day Friday, that's going to be this past week, that's June 2nd, 30-year conventional rates were sitting at an average of right around 6.9%, with your VA and FHA rates typically about a quarter percent below that. Now, if you look at the pricing on bonds and mortgage-backed securities, you might have expected to see a little bit more improvement in interest rates. For example, the MBS, that's mortgage-backed security, 5.0 coupons were priced at 97.41 on Friday the 26th. They are priced today, Friday, June 2nd, at 98.32. That's an improvement of about 100 basis points in pricing. Now, when you look at the rate sheet for a mortgage, those rates have not improved by 100 basis points. And so what's going on there? Again, volatility. When we've got prices up, down, up, down, up, down, it's hard to price an asset that can swing heavily in price. And the risk is that if you're locking in after a day of substantial improvement that may not stick, that within a day or two even, you might be at a pretty substantial loss on that rate lock. So lenders need to see improvement in pricing, that's bond and mortgage-backed security pricing. They need to see it stick for a few days for that really to translate onto your rate sheets. So what's going on? Is the improvement sticking? Well, no, not really. So again, we saw a good improvement throughout the week. Uh, That was based, I think, in part on the debt ceiling resolution, Um, the debt ceiling debacle or whatever you want to call it. It wasn't having an enormous impact on bond pricing and mortgage-backed securities. There was some based on just some risk around it or some uncertainty, but it wasn't a major player. I don't think there was ever a great deal of deal of concern that uh, that we were going to actually default on our debt as a country or that some sort of resolution wouldn't be reached the probability of that was very 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 low so not a huge amount of concern either way it got resolved rates got a little bit better pricing got a little bit better but friday saw the release of jobs data okay so this is where we start to dive in a little bit more what do i mean when i say jobs data or wage data on this podcast well there's really two sources or two primary sources that come into play. The more heavily weighted source of data for jobs and wage is the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, U.S. BLS. The first Friday of each month, they release data relating to jobs and wage growth for the previous month. So Friday, June 2nd, we get data for the month of May. It covers a couple of things. For example, average earnings. That is how much people are making, not how many people are uh, not how many people are are employed. It's looking at both the hours that are worked and the rate that people are paid for those hours. So it's true earnings. The USBLS report also covers unemployment rate. What percentage of people in the labor force are not employed? Uh, and we need to define this, I think. What does unemployed mean, at least for the definition of this survey? Persons are classified as unemployed if they do not have a job, have actively looked for work in the past four weeks, and are currently available for work. Persons who are not working and were waiting to be recalled to a job from which they have been temporarily laid off are also included as unemployed. So if you don't fit that definition, then you're not counted as an unemployed individual. So for example, people that have maybe lost their job, they've searched, and they've kind of given up on finding a job for an extended period of time greater than four weeks. That individual is not counted as unemployed. They're not part of the labor force. So the third thing that this USBLS monthly report covers is non-farm payrolls. It's just a count of all of the individuals employed in the economy, not counting agriculture, and they release that number as a positive or a minus. It's a growth or loss number. There is a separate report outside of the USBLS report that is published by a company, ADP, in conjunction with the Stanford Digital uh, Economy Lab. This report usually comes out one or two days before USBLS... It uses slightly less thorough data and therefore tends to carry less impact on financial markets, but it can be a good preview or a soft preview of the USBLS report. ADP is pulling data from the companies that they work with. They're a payroll or HR platform, if you will. Um, And so they don't include any government employees, which the USBLS report does. In case you were curious, there's a ton of people who work for the government. They also ADP also has to extrapolate their data to cover the entire economy. Not everyone works with them as a company. So they take the, the very large, given very large number of companies that they do work with, and they extrapolate that out to kind of estimate what the entire economy looks like. And in recent years, we've seen some divergence between the two reports. You know, you might get one that looks a little stronger or weaker than the other. But typically, the ADP report is a great preview for that upcoming USBLS report. Okay, so we've covered what the data is, where it's coming from. Uh, this report, this USBLS report, was released Friday, June 2nd, again, the date of this podcast. What happened on that report? Well, jobs crushed expectations. Not great. Uh, the non farm payrolls came in at 339K growth versus a forecast of 190,000. So that's a lot more job creation than was anticipated, uh, and that can point to potentially persistent inflation. Uh, They also revised the previous two months, that's April and March numbers. They revised those numbers upwards, so so they look a little bit stronger in retrospect. That's bad for mortgage rates. However, if you look at the average trend line in total payrolls over a 12-month period, um, even with this month being up, the the average 12-month trend line is still down. And this month may just be kind of an outlier. It may be some month-to-month variance. We will see. However, that again, that overall trend line does suggest some cause for long-term optimism around mortgage rates because, again, declining job growth is going to be good for mortgage rates. Uh, for the short term, however, not great. The unemployment numbers did paint a conflicting picture in this Friday report. You can see that unemployment rate rose from 34 to 3.7%. That's really odd considering that you also saw job growth. Typically, those numbers are going to be correlated. It's weird to see a ton of job growth, but also growing on inflation. So again, this is something that we just need to shake out over the next month or two. Kind of the same thing when you look at the the long-term average trajectory, though. Unemployment is increasing. So when we look at these long-term 12-month trend lines or even like three, four-month trend lines, the data does align a little bit better. also important to mention, wage growth. Wage growth increased at 0.3% month over month. That's lower than the forecast of 0.4%. And what this means is that the rate of wage growth is continuing to slow also following the long-term 12-month trend. So, what do we see? It looks like at least this month, there were a lot of new jobs, but unemployment is up and wage, wages are slowing down. So when we look long-term, again, we've got a lot of cause for optimism around mortgage rates because fewer jobs, lower payrolls, higher unemployment, these things are all good for mortgage rates because they're bad for inflation. So it bodes well on that front, but sadly, it, it has the potential to correlate, again, with a job loss recession and some households feeling financial pain. We'll see. Going forward, the next thing that we're going to be looking at is the ISM non-manufacturing PMI data release on Monday the 5th. This data is released by ISM. That's the Institute for Supply Management. What they do is they survey, purchase, and supply executives in the non-manufacturing sectors, that's service industry. Uh, and this survey can provide a really good gauge of the strength of the service sector in the economy. You know, if they're doing particularly well, this tends to correlate with higher inflation. We're using that word a lot today. Um, when people are spending more money on services, typically that that again, it's going to line up with more inflation. So pullbacks in the service sector then tend to align with declining inflation. Lower inflation is good for mortgage rates. ISM releases a separate report that does uh, measure manufacturing output. That's not going to be in the first week of June. Uh, but just pointing that out so that you understand that there are two different surveys, one for the service sector and one for manufacturing. And on the manufacturing side, it's pretty simple. If these manufacturing companies are building more goods and receiving higher levels of order f- orders for new goods, that's pointing again to persistent inflation and persistent spending, uh, which is bad for mortgage rates. The Fed is also going to be issuing a decision on rate hikes on June 14th. That's an important one to watch out for. In mid-May, it was kind of widely expected that rate hikes were done. There was a pretty strong consensus that that was it. We were going to hit that. That was the top rate, and we were going to stay there potentially for a while. I think it's a little bit closer to a 50-50 split now. At least that's how the bond market's pricing it. But we'll see. There's a possibility that we get another quarter percent hike. There's a possibility that we stop and we kind of sit where the current federal prime rate is. So yeah, what is that? What is the federal funds rate or the federal prime rate, if you will? It is the interest rate that is charged to very large financial financial institutions in order to borrow very large sums of money for very short periods of time, typically a few days. So the federal funds rate does directly impact consumer loans and commercial loan interest rates. It does not directly impact mortgage rates. There is some relation, but the federal fund rate increasing does not necessarily mean that mortgage rates will go up. It may and it may not, depending on what else is going on in the economy. So again, we'll see what's going to happen in June If the Fed decides to hike rates by a quarter point again, I think that's mostly baked into mortgage rates already. However, if they decide to stick with the pause and not hike rates, we may see some improvement on the mortgage rate front. But, uh, you know, if you've got a, a loan product with a variable rate, like a, a, a HELOC, for example, it's very likely tied directly to that federal funds rate with something like a three percent margin. So if the Fed moves the rate from five and a quarter to five and a half, your HELOC is probably going to see an interest rate go up from eight and a quarter to eight and a half, something along those lines. Now, if you've got a HELOC and that margin is more than three percent above the federal prime rate, and if you also have exceptional credit, here's a pro tip for you: it might be time to shop for a new HELOC. The margin should not typically be a whole lot greater than three percent. So. Enjoy. One other thing I wanted to cover really quickly that isn't getting a lot of airtime is student loans. Now, if you haven't heard, payments are coming back. Loans will exit forbearance in June, and first payments will be due either at the end of August or in early September. So, why are we mentioning this? Well, once again, inflation. One really good way to put a dent in consumer spending, take a huge chunk out of people's budget. So let's look at some data from Forbes uh, as of quarter one of 2023 on average student loan debt. For people aged 25 to 34, they're carrying an average balance of about $32,700. For the 39, or pardon me, 35 to 49 age group, that's $44,500. And for the age group of 50 to 59, they are carrying an average of $47,700 in student loans. So fair disclosure, I did pretty light due diligence around this data. It was grabbed, some, f- grabbed from Forbes, uh, but some grain of salt there. I didn't do a whole lot of deep diving on their methodology. However, I will say that these balances do align anecdotally with what I see from people who are my clients. Uh, I will say some professions, lawyers or doctors, for example, are carrying quite a bit more in student loans, often balances north of $200,000. Now, a fully amortized student loan payment. And what that means is a full payment with no reduction based on income or anything. You're just making the full monthly payment. Typically, that runs about 1% of the full loan balance per month. So for various age groups, essentially what we're doing here is we're adding, on average somewhere between $327 and $477 a month in debt payments. That's a big chunk. And that's money that's going to be coming out of their general spending budget, money that they can no longer spend elsewhere. And I, for one, suspect that this change may contribute to a decline in consumer spending and subsequently a decline in inflation. Again, that all adds up long-term to better mortgage rates. So keep an eye on those inflation numbers as student loan payments come back into the picture here in September, October, November, towards the end of this year. We might see some good uh, declines in inflation as a result. That's all we've got for today. I hope you enjoyed this slightly deeper dive and that you learned something. If you've got questions or anything that you'd like to hear from us, please do not hesitate to reach out. You will find all of my contact information in the podcast episode description. And keep an eye out for that, that next episode coming out in the next handful of days on a history of mortgage rates and perhaps some thoughts on the future. If you've made it all the way through this episode, that pod is definitely going to interest you. So with that, we're going to wrap things up. I hope that you are having a wonderful day and that you have a safe journey home.